The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's meant to highlight that the individuals making these decisions, being the ERB, the Equities Review Board, are not mandated or encouraged through the current charter to consider key perspectives or pieces of information that I believe should be considered uh, in order to make an informed vulnerability adjudication that truly prioritizes the public's interest. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 6th, 2022. The business of offensive cyber operations and intelligence gathering increasingly requires the military and intelligence community to exploit networks, hardware, and software owned or produced by American companies and used by American citizens. Sometimes this exploitation occurs with the use of zero-day vulnerabilities. In order to determine when zero-day vulnerabilities should be exploited versus disclosed to the relevant vendor so that the vulnerability can be patched, the United States government engages in an interagency process known as the Vulnerabilities Equities Process, or VEP. I sat down with Dr. Lindsay Polly, Director of Defense and National Security at Starburst Aerospace, to talk about her recently defended dissertation, To Disclose or Not to Disclose, a methods-based approach for examining and improving the U.S. government's vulnerabilities equities process. We discuss the purpose of the VEP, how it is structured to operate, and how its current state and structure impedes its ability to promote longer-term social good through its vulnerability adjudications. We also talked about some of Lindsay's recommendations to improve the VEP. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 6th. Lindsay Polly on the vulnerabilities equities process. Lindsay, what is the VEP or the vulnerabilities equities process and what ostensibly are its goals? So the vulnerability equities process, known as VEP for short, is a federal level public policy in the United States uh, used to make decisions around whether the U.S. government should disclose or retain knowledge around newly discovered software vulnerabilities. The VEP charter itself is unclassified and accessible by the public and specifically states that its goal or mission is to prioritize the public's interest in cybersecurity and uh, to protect critical infrastructure and information systems through the disclosure or reporting of these newly discovered software vulnerabilities. Now, that may seem fairly straightforward, but it's actually not. 
the true goal or intention of the VEP is debated among the relatively small group of people who are familiar with it. And the debate really hinges on one key phrase, which is that the policy explicitly calls out the public's interest as its priority. The mission statement doesn't you know, call out the federal government's interest or the intelligence community's interest or even the commercial sector's interest. It specifically states this, this phrase of the public's interest and who or what constitutes that quote unquote public's interest really lies at the crux of that debate. You know, that is that phrase intended to mean the public's interest as determined by the federal government, or is it meant to refer to something, you know, more societal and holistic in nature since what may be, you know, in the interest of the government and what may be in the broader interest of the public or citizenry are not always the same. Uh, Another reason why the true goal of the VEP, however, is debated, and I won't get too in-depth on this now because I'm sure we'll touch on it later, but it has to do with how the VEP itself is structured. Even though the mission statement clearly states that the public's interest should be prioritized, the actual equities considerations used to make the disclosure or retention decisions during the process appear to skew quite heavily towards government-oriented equities or take a government perspective rather than equally considering equities that may take more of a public good or public-oriented perspective on the potential impacts that they might cause or result in from a disclosure or retention decision. So to answer your, your question, based on all the research and interviews I conducted, my personal understanding and interpretation is that the VEP's intended goal is to actually take the more public good-oriented stance and maximize that amount of longer-term public good that is generated by these disclosure or retention decisions. So I want to back up for a bit. And and when you talk about these disclosure or retention decisions, what exactly is at issue? When, when the government is determining whether to use and exploit a zero-day vulnerability versus disclose it to the vendor, what are the competing equities? Oh, that's a bit of a loaded question, <laughs> but it has to do with Again, how the VEP charter itself is structured. So there are several annexes. One of them, Annex B, specifically outlines the equities. And there are four subsections. Two of those subsections, which comprise about 90% of all the equities considerations that the Equities Review Board, which we'll touch on later, that actually goes through and reviews these equities to determine whether or not a vulnerability should be retained or disclosed, 90% of those equities focus solely on the government's perspective. You know, how will this vulnerability, if it's retained or disclosed, impact current government operations? How will it impact current government systems or current government relations with other uh, countries? There's only one bullet out of the entire, I believe it's 30 bullets, that lists or references an equity that talks about how the disclosure or retention of a vulnerability might impact the commercial sector. And there are no bullets that explicitly talk about how a retention or disclosure might impact the broader public, people who do not have the resources or the knowledge 
to know that they need to go into their computer and apply a specific security patch or know that they may be vulnerable in specific situations with certain digital devices that they might have. So that is the the core issue of where we see an incongruence in between the types of equities considered, even though there are key stakeholders like the public and the commercial sector that do have a true stake in these adjudication outcomes. So thinking about the stakes in these adjudication outcomes, as you call them, sort of even taking it back a step further. Why would industry, those companies that build the hardware and the software that are used by people all over the world, including American citizens, why would they be concerned if the government retained a zero-day vulnerability, for example, to use in an offensive cyber operation or an intelligence operation? What's the risk? Absolutely. So there's sort of two key risks. The first from the the commercial entity's perspective is that if the government retains a vulnerability and the U.S. government wants to potentially use this for information gathering outside of the country or operations outside of the country, that still means that all of the products and components that this vendor produces that is subject to this particular vulnerability could in fact be compromised themselves if a um, nation state actor or some type of external adversary identifies this vulnerability and then goes and tries to use it against the company. The other perspective is that the potential external entities who are not you know, white hats who do not necessarily have, you know, best interest once they discover this vulnerability, not only could they impact the commercial entity itself, but they could go in and then compromise all of the customers who have this particular system or component in their own networks. And those that can extend to other parts of the commercial sector, the financial sector, um, the healthcare sector, as well as down to actual individuals having bank accounts compromised for a small family or an individual having their, you know, life savings wiped out can be a life altering event that they cannot recover from. So these are some of the key reasons why the citizenry's perspective on how they're impacted by these disclosure or retentions is so important to consider during the adjudication process. So you've touched on this a little bit, but based on your research, which is the unclassified public documents available, why do you think the United States government formed the vulnerabilities equities process? So I think that's a great question. The VEP actually has a very interesting genealogy, if you will, that I was able to piece together based on a combination of publicly available and recently declassified documents. And I think that gives us insight into not only why it was put together, but why we have the current version that we do. So a little background on it. The VEP dates back to 2008 uh, when the George W. Bush administration issued National Security Presidential Directive 54, or NSPD 54, in an effort to establish a more holistic national level approach to securing cyberspace. 
As part of that effort, NSPD 54 established something called the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative, or the CNCI, to essentially execute that whole-of-government approach that is outlined in NSPD 54. Now, if you fast-forward one year, you have President Obama directing the Cyberspace Policy Review of the federal government's plans and activities within cyberspace. A key recommendation resulting from that policy is that the CNCI should become a key element of an updated and broadened national cyber policy. This updating and broadening did in fact occur via a working group that was led by the Obama administration's director of national intelligence at the time and culminated in the first official iteration of the VEP in 2010. Up until that point, all of the origin documents, so NSPD 54, the CNCI, and even the first iteration of the VEP charter were all classified and unknown to the general public. Then in 2014, we have the public reporting of the Heartbleed vulnerability, which for anyone who's listening is unfamiliar with it, it was a very serious software vulnerability in the cryptographic software library used basically for the internet, which allowed attackers to eavesdrop on internet communications and steal data directly from from compromised users or service providers. This public notification led to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence's Public Affairs Office to release an official statement. And in this statement, perhaps unintentionally, they actually mentioned the vulnerabilities equities process publicly for the first time. So that's how the public first learns that there is this process that exists. And then, you know, fast forward again three years, several FOIA requests later, we have the updated and almost entirely unclassified VEP charter, which was released in 2017 under the the Trump administration. So getting back to the core of your question, the most recent iteration of the VEP, because it's unclassified, we actually know quite a lot about how it's officially structured and how the process is supposed to flow at a very high level. Once a software vulnerability is discovered, the discovering entity would forward that vulnerability to the VEP Executive Secretariat, which is led conveniently by the NSA. The role itself, though, is an administrative function, so they keep records, store information, uh, including final adjudication decisions. And once that Executive Secretariat receives a vulnerability, They send it to what's called the Equities Review Board, or ERB. I mentioned a few minutes earlier. This review board reviews technical and intelligence information related to the vulnerability. They discuss how different stakeholder equities uh, might be impacted by an adjudication. And they listen to arguments from other entities who are not ERB members, but who claim equity in a vulnerability. So entities who claim that, you know, Whatever the outcome is, they have a stake in that outcome for the vulnerability. The ERB itself is composed of 10 federal-level U.S. entities, a majority of which are linked to the intelligence or law enforcement communities. Um, So those include the CIA, the Department of Commerce, Homeland Security, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, Department of Justice, Office of uh, Management Budget, the State Department, and Treasury. So ultimately, these meetings end with either a disclose or restrict decision 
um, for each vulnerability. A disclose adjudication would mean that the software vulnerability is then communicated to the respective vendor so that hopefully a security patch will be developed. And for restrict adjudications, the appropriate government entities are notified for follow-on actions regarding the use or exploitation of that vulnerability. In order for a software vulnerability to even go through this process, though, it has to reach um, two criteria, two threshold criteria, which is that it must be newly discovered, which is the charter defines as not being previously known to the U.S. government in particular prior to its submission. And two, it must not be known by the vendor of the vulnerable component or system. So again, based on my interviews and my research, these vulnerabilities often came about or were discovered through regular government operations, which ranged from you know, regular IT security work all the way to the other end of the spectrum of intelligence and military exercises. So in listening to the entities, the agencies that are part of this vulnerabilities equities process, and I know this is previewing something we're going to talk about, I don't, I don't hear any private sector representation. Is that correct? That is correct. So there is no formal mechanism or no formal ERB member charged with representing the equities or voice of the commercial sector, private sector, uh, or the broader public. Um, Some people argue that those are baked into some of the missions, but the only one that really comes close is Homeland Security. But even Homeland Security is more focused on, you know, finding any threats to uh, the domestic national security landscape. So there's, again, no focus on the commercial sector. Treasury does look at um, some of the equities, obviously, from the financial sector to ensure that there's no sort of financial or economic meltdown that might occur from a vulnerability that is put through this process. But Yep, you're 100% right, Stephanie. There is no formally charged ERB member that looks after the private sector equities. So in your dissertation, you've made some significant critiques of the VEP. And it seems that one of your dissertation's central findings is that the VEP in its current state and structure is unable to adhere to ethics considerations that are important to software vulnerability-oriented public policy, which directly impedes its ability to promote long-term social good through its vulnerability adjudications. First of all, is that a fair characterization of your overarching critique? I would say that it is a fair characterization for the ethics-specific component that my dissertation looks at, which is very intricate. There are three components. One traces the evolution of the charter as well as the evolution of the public discourse. One looks at a qualitative analysis of interviews of those VEP subject matter experts to examine expert opinions on how well the VEP in practice aligned to the actual ethics perspective. And then the third uh, examines, you know, from, from an ethics perspective, to what degree the equities considerations outlined in the VEP charter support disclosure or retention decisions that are in favor of the public good. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there, and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay, and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work 
of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So in reaching this overarching critique, coming to believe that that is, you know, a central problem with the way the VEP operates in its current state, you felt that you had to analyze the issue, develop and apply a new ethics framework. How did you end up coming to to that understanding that you needed to develop a framework and you designed a framework that is ethics-based and and relies on virtue ethics. Can you explain all of that a bit? Un- unpack, please. Absolutely. So a lot of unpacking to talk through. So everyone sit down for a little bit and, <laughs> and bear with me. But um, I chose to use an ethics-based perspective because ethics have been widely used across many disciplines, including public policy, to better understand the relationship between macro-level structures, which the VEP is, and its relationship to public good. So to begin, the intersection of cyber and ethics, which is no surprise to you, Stephanie, remains an under-researched area, and I was unable to locate any ethics frameworks that were specifically designed for application to that software vulnerability-centric public policy area which again, the VEP is, which meant that I needed to construct a new ethics framework in order to continue with that third component of my research. And I felt that it was valuable to do so. Now, I know that that sounds really specific, but I think it's important to think about it in the context of the time that we live in. So our lives are very dependent in both a figurative and literal sense on technology. And that technology has flaws, things like software vulnerabilities. And the entities developing the tech don't always have end users' well-being in mind. So incentives to improve user well-being and security are not always there. So I felt that an ethics framework specific to software vulnerability-centric public policy was important to develop, and not only for a closer examination of the VEP, but for researchers to look at and build off of as our lives become increasingly intertwined with that that digital realm. Now, the most commonly used ethics frameworks for the cyber domain that I uncovered during my research tend to be utilitarianism and consequentialism. Um, For everyone unfamiliar with those two, utilitarianism looks at maximizing happiness for the most people possible. One problem with this framework, however, is that the way of operationalizing happiness can be difficult. So what does happiness look like in the context of software vulnerabilities? 
Is it, you know, simply a binary protected, unprotected? Are we willing to sacrifice some security so that our cell phones and apps, uh, you know, all connect to all of our other devices automatically? The answer to that is probably going to vary not only from person to person, but also case by case. So because of that variability in utilitarianism, it wasn't a good choice for a framework that needed to be applied in a consistent and repeatable manner. Consequentialism, on the other hand, looks at how ethical a decision is by the consequences it causes down the line. This framework receives a lot of criticism, particularly in the cybersecurity realm, because of how difficult it can be to actually figure out what those consequences might be and how far down the line you look. And when we look at the context of software vulnerabilities, it becomes almost impossible to calculate. It's difficult to know know, who has access to a vulnerability. Is it just the U.S. government? Is it another entity? Who has the skills and motive to exploit it? Um, And that's all compounded by trying to figure out attribution afterwards. So because of that, this framework also was too inconsistent to apply in a repeatable manner. I ended up using as you mentioned, what's referred to as the virtue theory. As my foundation, virtue theory uses virtues to examine a subject's moral principles within a specific context. So the VEP already provides a a specific context of the analysis of these software vulnerabilities. There are several benefits to using virtue theory. It's a well-established approach that's been used across many disciplines to understand the link, again, between these macro-level structures and social good. It provides a level of flexibility without being too abstract, as we encountered, you know, with utilitarianism. But it also allows us to abstract away from specific religious beliefs uh, in particular, which I felt was important for public policy uh, in the United States. Now, virtues tend to also be thought of as dimensions that withstand the test of time, if you will. So leveraging a virtue-based framework allows that framework to remain relevant for a longer period of time, even though the context might change, which is particularly important for such a rapidly evolving field like cyber. The virtue-based ethics framework I developed is comprised of four virtues and, um, I went through an entire literature review and selection process that I won't bore everyone with here, but the four virtues that I ended up selecting were beneficence, which is the promotion of human well-being, situational fairness, which is the consideration of all elements around a scenario to avoid bias, non-maleficence, which is avoiding actions that inflict harm, and then the fourth uh, virtue I chose was solidarity which is the act of making a decision or committing an action with concern and in the interest of the vulnerable who might also be impacted by that decision. Now, beneficence was important to include because it captures that idea that decisions being made by a public policy should be trying to maximize the social benefit produced. Situational fairness was important to include because it's imperative that these public policies accurately capture and reflect as many perspectives or aspects of the overall stakeholder group as possible 
in order to avoid any decisions that could be unfairly biased or marginalize uh, specific demographics or groups. Non-maleficence was important to include because as an extension of the government, these public policies should not be made with the intention of causing harm to humans or their social fabric. And solidarity, I felt, was important to include because it goes beyond accountability, which is a virtue that, that was commonly used. But this framework was the first one that I could locate that actually implemented solidarity. And solidarity goes beyond accountability by making decisions or carrying out actions in a way that demonstrates concern about the impact that those decisions and actions are going to have on the welfare of the, of the people who do not have a voice in that decision-making process. So when I applied these virtues to the VEP, I found that the VEP in three out of the four virtue categories was unable to conclusively demonstrate, important, that's an important caveat there, that it was unable to conclusively demonstrate that the adjudication process was being done in a way that deliberately tried to maximize public good. And this was primarily due to, again, the equities considerations that we spoke about outlined in the charter, which are structured in a way that doesn't appear to provide the equities review board with access or adequate information on key stakeholder groups and contextualized stakeholder sensitivities, such as the commercial consumer equities that you mentioned, Stephanie, since the related equities are almost entirely focused on the government perspective. And so this finding isn't meant to be interpreted as saying uh, that the VEP is unethical or that it is you know, completely flawed, but rather it's meant to highlight that the individuals making these decisions, being the ERB, the Equities Review Board, are not mandated or encouraged through the current charter to consider key perspectives or pieces of information that I believe should be considered uh, in order to make an informed vulnerability adjudication that truly prioritizes the public's interest. So based on that analysis, you then set out in the end of your dissertation to make specific policy recommendations that are focused on how to improve the VEP and as I read your work, bring it more in line with a process that is set up to serve the public good. Can you talk about some of uh, your most important recommendations? Absolutely. So based on the findings and gaps highlighted across the three phases of my research, I developed 11 policy recommendations in total. I won't go through them all, but there are a couple um, that are relevant to the items that we've touched on today. Um, so the first, which is directly relevant to the ethics conversation, is that Annex B of the VEP, which outlines different equities that are, are supposed to be considered during each adjudication process, should be expanded to improve consumer, industry, and international-oriented equities representation during these equity review board discussions. So this would at least provide a precedent and an expectation for these discussions to be more inclusive of the sensitivities around non-government stakeholders that are arguably a key piece of the conversation to consider when the topic of 
quote unquote public good or public interest is being addressed. Another recommendation is that a new Annex D that includes this virtue-based ethics framework I outlined should be added to the VEP charter to not only help guide these ERB ethics conversations, but to do so in a way that is repeatable and consistent over time. By doing that, by providing a repeatable and consistent framework, it allows the ERB itself as well as the VEP director to track trends in adjudications and see whether or not, you know, some recalibration or over-disclosure or over-retention policy is being either directly or inadvertently implemented. The third recommendation is that the VEP Charter should provide insight into how non-equity review board members or non-ERP members are notified when a vulnerability is initially submitted for review in order to claim equity. So if you remember back to the beginning of our discussion, there are only 10 permanent ERB members, the majority of which are intelligence community or law enforcement related. And although members of non-ERB entities can participate in these adjudication discussions, They can only do so if they can demonstrate a stake in the vulnerability that's being adjudicated. And it's not clear how these non-ERB members can be notified of a vulnerability that is going to be reviewed, which would be required for them to be able to claim an equity or stake in it. So while it's possible that this process does already exist, there's no clear process outlined in the charter which makes it at least appear as though there's a potential significant gap in ensuring that the ERB is in fact hearing all U.S. government entity arguments during the review process. And that review process, you know, might be able to account for um, non-permanent ERB members that maybe do voice that uh, more private sector or public citizenry perspective on these adjudication discussions. And then the final policy recommendation that I'll mention is related to actually using the VEP in a more strategic manner, given the flexing, you know, geopolitical powers and geopolitical issues going on today, combined with the importance of the cyber domain in both a defensive and offensive sense. I recommend that the U.S. government use its unique position and advanced experience with this formalized VEP process to educate and work with our partners in other countries to develop their own VEP-like policies as a way to influence global cyber norms in a a direction that benefits the United States. There's only a handful of other countries that actually have a publicly acknowledged VEP-like process. All of them are are five-eyed countries and are strikingly similar to the U.S. government's VEP. So continuing this educational work and and really reaching out to other countries and partners would just help move that cyber norm to the next level. So it struck me in reading your research or dissertation that the development of your ethics framework, which is virtue-based, and and your recommendations really seem to try and be lightweight, if you will, not overly bureaucratic. 
was there a, a particular reason that you tried to take that lightweight tack, if you will? Absolutely. And I'm glad you picked up on that. So I intentionally designed the both the virtue-based framework as well as the recommendations to be uh, practical. I wanted us to figure out a easy way to actually start implementing some of these changes that wouldn't require, you know, a huge overhaul. They require maybe a few additions here, an addition of an annex, and then um, thinking about ways to more succinctly parameterize and scope out what the VEP looks at and does not look at and make it more transparent uh, for the public. Now, the idea of making it lightweight is that if it's something that requires too much effort, we all know that it's more likely that it's not going to happen than actually be fulfilled. So I wanted a framework that could easily be referenced by the ERB, uh, the Equities Review Board, and by the VEP director, something that could be you know, easily discussed during these adjudications because that increases the likelihood that it will be used which means that it provides additional levels of assurance that these equities considerations that are important to a large percentage of the overall um, public uh, citizenry are actually being considered and that the potential outcomes are not going to be overly harmful to select uh, demographics that do not have a voice at this process. So, Lindsay, before we end, do you have any closing comments or thoughts? Yes, I would like to just sort of leave everyone with this last thought about, you know, while there are different uh, advocacy groups who argue that the U.S. government should disclose any and all, you know, newly discovered software vulnerabilities for immediate patching, I think it's important that we remain firmly rooted in the reality of the world that we live in which requires acknowledging the uncomfortable truth that having a default to disclosure type federal policy around software vulnerabilities would not necessarily be in the best interest of U.S. national security priorities, nor in the best interest of the American public. And there are scenarios in which the retention of a vulnerability for either intelligence gathering or operations is in fact justified and necessary, and we should remain sensitive to these situations and protect the associated vulnerabilities. With that said, though, we shouldn't subscribe to a blanket policy of vulnerability retention and stockpiling because we know that this too is dangerous and counterproductive to our national security and public interests. So ensuring that these decisions are guided by a structure that is not overly biased towards Either disclosure or retention is key, and the VEP was developed as this means to formalize and guide that balancing of the practical and the strategic risks and benefits associated with these decisions in a consistent and repeatable way. And although the VEP is not perfect, it did bring together different components of the federal government that were responsible for different aspects of national security and did so in a way that was substantially more transparent and structured than any other comparable policy in the world at the time of its of its release. And even to this day, it remains, you know, that foundation for which other countries have built their own vulnerability equities processes. And I think it's important that we view the VEP not just as a procedural document, 
it serves as a fundamental purpose of pushing U.S. cyber policy in a direction that we as a country believe to be correct. And it forces us to think about the influence that we as a global power, both on a government and economic sense, want to affect on the broader international community. You know, questions like, how do we want vulnerabilities and cybersecurity to be thought of and spoken about? And what kind of example, you know, are we setting? How vulnerable are our allies to specific bugs? And should that stop us from leveraging vulnerabilities if we know our allies are, you know, knowingly investing in these technologies that could be vulnerable? So there are always going to be competing equities and there will be times the U.S. government needs to exploit a vulnerability for national security or significant law enforcement efforts. But, you know, the VEP forces the federal government to look at the other types of harm that they might cause through the retention and exploitation of our vulnerabilities. So there is no VEP structure that will ever be able to hold the weight of every criticism. But if our goal is to you know, conceptualize and implement a VEP that maximizes the amount of societal good produced while minimizing the amount of harm that's being inflicted while moving government and industry in a direction that builds a less vulnerable cyber ecosystem, if you will, then I think we're moving in the right direction. We'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining me, Lindsay. Thank you, Stephanie. Really appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, the aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. 